Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I had the uh, good fortune of having spent Thanksgiving with you and your family, and it's always really good to see you in person, uh, given the fact we normally record uh, on the other sides of the Pacific Ocean, it's really good to close that gap every now and then. Yes, and uh, people, you know, the, you know, the audience wants to know when when are you going to ever get back to work? Apparently, not yet. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm sure it's going to have to happen at some point, but I uh, no, uh, not yet, not before, not before due time. Very good. Uh, well, uh, fortunately, we are sponsored by Mailchimp, uh, as as we are every episode. Mailchimp, you, you, if you have a store like an e-commerce store, when you connect your store to Mailchimp, they will analyze the purchase history of each customer to help you make smart, data-driven predictions about what they'll want to buy in the future. It is enterprise-level technology made simple for everyone. You can just drag and drop. You can send personalized product recommendations to your customers, which will increase sales in just a few clicks. What they do is they detect purchase patterns in your e-commerce data and then use them to automatically predict your customers' buying behavior so you can target the right people with the right products. And you can learn more about each customer's individual purchase history and recommend items by viewing their subscriber profile. You can do all that with MailChimp, which, uh, again, uh, is the product I use for Stratechery, and I'm very grateful that they sponsor Exponent. Yes, so am I. As always, awesome to have them. Thank you, guys. Very good. So we, uh, <laughs> we 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 will not talk politics this week. So all the people who have bailed on us can 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 join in. Uh, if we haven't lost them permanently, uh, we were starting to get a little bit of uh, a little bit of grumpiness at the end of the second one. But yeah, okay, all done, finished for now at least. Well. Yeah, for now. I think for now is probably the operative word. Uh, anyhow, so this week I wrote, I went in pretty much the opposite direction. Uh, just before Thanksgiving, Google had some interesting, really interesting cloud announcements that I'd been wanting to write about and uh, was originally to do it in a daily update. And then, uh, you know, kind of thinking about it more in the context of what they're doing there. This week also happens to be the week that Amazon has their big reinvent conference, which is kind of AWS's annual conference in Las Vegas. And so it seemed like uh, this would be a good week in general to to talk about the cloud, which we've talked about a few times. I think we talked about it most recently in the context of Amazon versus Oracle. Right. Um, and this is, this is definitely, if that was uh, a case of looking at how the, the new breed of companies that have been built on internet assumptions are are coming at the old ones. This is one of these cases where it's watching how the various new players are fighting it out amongst each other. I thought it was a really, really interesting update, actually. Well, thank you, and and yeah, I think that's a, that's an excellent framing, right? Because we, I think we've established on this podcast and and just generally the value and importance of of cloud computing and why why it is the future, and, and not just not just like. SaaS, like software as a service, but this sort of infrastructure level called computing where companies, you know, there was that time for like 10, 20 years where companies were building their own data centers. And that, if you're not a tech company, it if you think about it, it doesn't make much sense to build your own data center. Like that's not your core company. It's not what you're, it's not what you're good at. And frankly, that's why they often hired it out to companies like IBM or, or mm. uh, Accenture working with Microsoft or, or things, things, or, and obviously Oracle and SAP and all the kind of old line, old line sort of mm-hmm. uh, enterprise, enterprise sellers. So anyhow, the, the, so we've established, we're, so we're, we're just going to kind of jump ahead. We've established that enterprise 
the future of enterprise computing is these massive cloud providers that have have huge scale specialize in this and it's it's so interesting because you really you really see more and more stories of people coming to appreciate that all the reasons people had to not do cloud computing are now reasons to do cloud computing like security i think is probably one of the most obvious ones like why it's securing data and securing a data center and securing stuff online is a really, really hard problem. And is it really a surprise that companies that devote literally hundreds of people to doing that end up being more secure than, you know, your pharmaceutical company or your CPG company or whatever, building their own data center that they're, which they're not even good at? I mean, it's a it's a really good insight into the way that disruption plays out, actually, because at the start, uh, companies would and you think back to the Internet from a consumer perspective, people would say you were crazy entering in. We've talked about it. People would say you're ent- crazy entering your credit card details into the Internet. And it it only starts at the low end with 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 uh, uh, uses like gaming and uh, pornography. Uh, yeah, and and, <laughs> and all those things where it's like the wild west. But as they grow and as those businesses serving those uses begin to grow, they get scale. And now, if you're say a professional working inside online security, you could go work perhaps at a CPG company or you could go work at a bank and and those are great places to work. But if you want to be doing the cutting edge stuff, why wouldn't you go work for a company whose job it is to provide the best hosting and the best security for companies all around the world? And they build up this scale. And then the there's there's this virtuous cycle where, oh, well, if we want if we want our services to be secure, we should go with this company because they have they're the experts in it. They have all the people that hire that that they have they've hired all the people that are the best in the world at it. And you see the companies that don't do this fall prey to like hackers and so on. Whereas it, it's it's relying on the experts just becomes a much more sensible option. Right, and we, there's scale that there, there's there's multiple ways that there are returns to scale. Right, I mean, you hear scale, you think about oh, they can buy a lot of stuff more cheaply. No, mm-hmm. the returns to scale are much deeper and more complex than that. I mean, you just hit on right there. The there's a talent return to to, mm. to, to scale. Right, there, there's not there's a finite number of people who are good at this stuff in the world, whether it be security or whether it be things like machine learning, which we're obviously going to get into, you know, mm. in a moment, but there's a, so, so there's kind of a gravity well that forms around these companies where they're doing the most interesting work and they have the most resources to compensate these people. Right. So it, it ends up being a, you know, and, and then they have the best people and then other people want to go work with the best people and they're going to go to these sort of places. There's a talent aspect to scale. There's also sort of a a real monetary aspect. So, I mean, I think the, uh, what you see with all these various hacks and break-ins and, and things that we've seen is the challenge with investing in security for your typical, say, like Target, right? A few years ago, mm, Target, mm-hmm. all their stuff was, was lifted, right? You're in your... Target's investment in security is kind of like paying an insurance policy. Mm. The the, re, the best return they can hope for is that something bad does not happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's a it's always challenging to make the case for a proper level of funding if you're a cost center, right? If you're not driving, yeah, if you're not right. driving the top line. Whereas for these cloud providers, whether it be Amazon or Google or Microsoft or IBM or whatever that might be, like that is a selling point. 
it is a reason to go to their service is because they are secure. So in this case, investments in security are not a cost center that you're just grudgingly paying in the hope that something bad will happen. It's a genuine investment into having a better product that is more appealing to more customers. And so your entire mindset around investment in those sorts of things is totally different. Your incentives, the incentives are kind of flipped on their head. And I mean, from the perspective of a company like Target, uh, you're, you're never going to differentiate your service on the basis of your security. It's just something that customers expect. It's almost like table stakes. Right. So if you're, if you're not going to differentiate, why even have it in-house? Like you want to figure out the things that give you a differentiable advantage, like, like a strategic advantage. And if something's table stakes, like having service, like having servers at table stakes. If if it's table stakes, get the people who are best to do it, get it off your plate and focus on the things that will differentiate you in the market. Right. And you see this in all kinds of features. Like we're going to get into a moment and we're kind of previewing, but like one of AWS's advantages, they just have so many more features and services than any, than anyone else. And they're just investing at, you know, like crazy. And they, you know, they announced a whole bunch of new ones this week at, at reInvent. Mm. And, and but here's another area where scale comes in, which is they have they have cost leverage or they have leverage because they have more revenue. So remember, these are big fixed costs. We've talk, we, we talk a lot about fixed costs versus marginal costs, right? Mm-hmm. If you're putting in significant fixed costs to build out a specific service, the more customers who leverage that service, or you can spread those costs over, the lower margins you have. Like that's that's what leverage is from a financial perspective. And so it's another example where the bigger you are, actually, the more incentive you have to build more, not just from a competitive standpoint, but from a financial standpoint, it just makes more sense. It's, it's, uh, it's a really, uh, like you get in, you get into this stuff and you understand on a B2B perspective, like it's kind of obvious to most people from a B2C perspective, but from a B2B perspective, how these markets end up being, so winner take all because the scale advantages start accruing, the virtuous cycle kicks in, and then it's so hard to arrest. And I think what was really interesting about your article this week is that the opportunities for a competitor to come in and arrest one of those virtuous cycles are so few. And it typically requires a big paradigm shift or a big shift in what it is that customers value most in the service. Um, And typically it involves a, a big step up the stack. And what, what was really interesting to me is that uh, it looks like in this space, there's a big step up the stack about to happen. Well, maybe, maybe. And that's kind of an open question, which we'll get to mm. in a moment. Let's back up for a second. So, sorry. A- a- no, it's okay. So, AWS uh, started 10 years ago, which interestingly enough, and I, I, I tried to kind of tease this out. I don't think I did a very good job in the article, but actually, Google started their enterprise business ten years ago as well. The same time mm. as the same time as AWS. It's kind of a happy coincidence that that I think is is telling in a way because how did Google start its cloud business? They basically took what was in the market, which was Microsoft Office. And they did it on the web, right? I mean, mm. by Office, including Outlook and Exchange and all that sort of stuff. And so Google launched Google Apps for Domains. And it's changed its name a few times. It's called G Suite now. But basically, it was the same offering that Microsoft had. But Microsoft's offering was on-premise and on local PCs. So you would buy mm. licenses for Office that would run your local PC. There would be a SharePoint server that was running in the on-premise data center. There would be the... Um, 
there would be the, the Exchange server, there'd be Outlook. And Google was, was offering the same thing, but it was all entirely online, right? And in some respects, it was very, very, it was like very, very forward looking, right? That is the future of applications. But in that case, you know, they, they were, they're almost jumping ahead. But it, it was also, it was both a jump ahead and also just kind of like a, a copy of what came before. So it's something we've talked about before, the whole ad idea, right? Where you had ads next to text and newspapers. So let's put ad next to text on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what, what Google's offering was, you know, 10 years ago. Right. And, and it, it, it was, I mean, I've, I've relied on those, those services, uh, a number of times. And I know many businesses have, and many people around the world have, but you're never going to take full advantage of the opportunity uh, when something when some completely new technology comes along, if all you do is take the previous paradigm and jam it into the new one, like it'll get you partway there, but it's never going to be as it's never going to reach the full potential of the technology if that's all you do. Right, exactly. And so, so but you see this so often, right? Where you see a big profitable company go into what seems to be an adjacent era area. And they just they they apply they apply what they have right and the, the, in it's it's almost hard to fault Google for that approach or mm. you know for that approach mm-hmm. that's what everyone does right so it, but the analogy I drew was Microsoft going into mobile and they kind of made a phone that was kind of like a PC right mm. I mean it but there there's a there's a process that comes where you figure out what's the actual paradigm that takes advantage of the future in the case of mobile that was the iPhone where it has to, it's touch first and it's you know it's not a input wimp sort of interface and it's just a complete reimagining of how the whole of how the whole thing works this is also a topic that that's come up um before this notion that for the for folks to really figure out how to uh, uh, to take advantage of the new paradigm, it almost requires them having failed in the last one. Like right, right, or, or or someone to come along and like from a blank slate. Well, well, someone to come along from a blank slate, but also someone else to have come along and do a failed, so you can see what to do better. I mean, right. G, G Suite wasn't a failure per se; it got success, but I think it's it's telling where the success came. It, it was it's been very successful in education. It's been successful on college campuses. It's been mm. successful in technology generally, in part because people are used to being on the cloud and more affinity for, I think for Google than Microsoft, mm-hmm. but, but the, uh, th- all those use cases, what's interesting about all those use cases is they f- remember Google was taking their consumer technology and basically porting it to the enterprise. Right. I mean, the most obvious example is like Gmail going to like, you know, mm-hmm. d- basically Gmail for your, for your domain. And the thing with consu- building for the for consumer markets, particularly when it comes to cloud-based services, because again, the topic we've talked touched on again and again, these are massive fixed costs. You're putting in all the engineering to build out these scalable services, building out the data centers, building out all the infrastructure that goes into supporting them. And ideally, in a consumer market, you have a certain degree of of sameness that so that you can get just massive returns. Like mm-hmm. if you and I using the same Gmail, that means Google can profit on both of us without paying an extra dime, right? To, right. For Google to serve, you know, f- fifty thousand Gmail users costs about the same for them to use hundred thousand Gmail users. And obviously, there's there's step gains as they go up to millions and hundreds of millions. But the 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 idea that one additional user costs zero. Is, is is a consistent one. And so the 
given that's their business, given that Google is a consumer business and that's their mindset, that's the way they they do product development, small surprise that kind of characterized their enterprise offering where it was relatively standard. There was limited configurability options. Yes, there was, you know, they, they added more and more slowly over time, but generally speaking, it was here is a solution, take it or leave it sort of sort of approach, which made sense given where they were coming from, from a, the sort of consumer market. Uh, yes, but like that approach with a few exceptions, like the ones that you touched on typically doesn't work so well when it comes to enterprises. Right, because the the in enterprise like there, it's such a different mindset. I mean, probably one of the key things about it's so different about selling to enterprise markets versus selling to consumer markets is enterprise markets are much more cognizant of kind of their return on investment, and, and like that's their that's the whole role is to like figure out what stuff costs, what's the return I get from it, what's the gain, like, and, and there's more in willingness to sort of invest in stuff that has that sort of long, long sort of payoff, you know, the, the, the target mm -hmm. security example notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why you had, for example, enterprises willing to pay for those Oracle databases, you know, even though they were super expensive and they took forever and they often failed because they they could see the return, and not just that, but they were willing to make decisions that where the return would be gained in you know in five to ten years, as opposed to the next the next sort of sort of year or two, and and so so the whereas consumers consumers are much more I think in the moment. I mean, yes, you will make some purchases with a view towards you know three to five years, but realistically, most consumer purchases, even the expensive ones like an iPhone, you're you're thinking at most like a year out, right? And a lot of other stuff, particularly when there's free alternatives, like you're just you're very much in the moment. It's like, why would I pay for email when I can get it for free? And and it's just a totally different mindset in the customer, which necessitates a completely different mindset in the provider. Yeah, it's interesting. And a lot of the folks who are willing to pay for things, and this is a broad characterization, but those consumers who are willing to pay for things are oftentimes bringing their techies, bringing that, that attitude that they've learned from work into their personal lives. But when people don't actually take the time to actively think, they just slip precisely into that mode you just described. Right. No, that's that's for sure the case. But even, even if you step back and go back to kind of sort of sort of cost center revenue driver sort of framework, right? Basically everything a consumer buys is a cost center. You know, like there's there's your work where you go and do stuff and get paid, and then there's all the stuff you do for fun. And yes, you may you will invest in your entertainment and your free time and your family and your house and whatever it might be. But it's like that's not the part where you earn money. So the, the mindset when you think about investing in tools or products or services, it's just it's it has to be different because it, it, it a business is about making a business is about generating income, making money, generating revenue. Uh, you know, living your life is not. I'd never thought about life as one big cost center, but that's a very uh, a, <laughs> a helpful and very reductionist way of thinking about it. <laughs> well, thank you. So, so yeah, but so but that's a that's one of the big reasons why it's a huge challenge for consumer for either to go in either direction for a for an enterprise company to serve the consumer for a consumer company to serve the enterprise because the markets you're dealing with are just completely completely different and on the flip side for example if you're if you're a customer and you're buying something for your enjoyment the the user experience the design whether it delights you matters right because you don't want our lives are short we're, and we 
spend half of them working, right? We don't want to be buying stuff that makes us unhappy. Whereas uh, from a work perspective, I'm not saying they want to make their employees unhappy per se, but the first priority is all about that, that ROI. Like, is this going to pay up, pay for itself? Is it going to be worth the investment? So, and again, different customers, different mindsets necessitate different sellers and different mindsets. That's true. You know what's interesting, though, and there are a couple of things that are convert that that are occurring that are starting to converge those two things much more than they would otherwise have been. And the first we've touched on briefly in this episode, but if you reach back to the episode we talked about Slack, when you're serving business customers where the marginal cost is, is uh, you're serving business customers in a way where the marginal cost is zero, it, why wouldn't you create a fantastic experience? Like the internet is enabling some of this consumer mentality to seep into the enterprise. But there's one other thing that's happening as well that, and I'm sure we're about to get into it, that is also uh, resulting in these two uh, these two markets converging more than they otherwise would be. And that is the importance of data. And data can come, it doesn't matter, well, it does to an extent matter whether it's consumer or enterprise, but the value of data in generating competitive advantage has meant that there's there's increasingly more overlap than there otherwise would have been. Well, just, I want to tease that out for a second, but I just want to mm. add in on the Slack point, the other point to add in is because you can buy SaaS software, cloud software with just a credit card. You don't mm. have to do a big installation. That mm-hmm. means the buyer and the user are increasingly the same person right. enterprise, yes. which they yes. aren't, which they weren't traditionally. And so that makes yes. a huge difference as well. But but uh, I'm curious, in what respect do you see uh, data as being something that is driving a convergence of consumer and and enterprise? Uh, so it's easiest to. Um it's easiest to so I would say in two respects and one I'm going to I'm going to reason by analogy uh, the first is uh, around uh, certain use cases where for example let's take Uber right like Uber doesn't care whether you're uh, getting into a car for the perspective of uh, going to a job or you're uh, you're a consultant flying to a different city going to visit a client or whether you're an individual who's going to visit their friends or family like you they are still serving both those customers and generating more data and when it comes to the point of let's say further down in the future uh, self-driving cars where they need to figure out how to uh, roll out a fleet of self-driving cars and how many to install or deploy and the capital costs associated with that, that data differentiating that between uh, differentiating that between enterprise and consumer is like a kind of meaningless distinction. Now, maybe there are not as many use cases like that as, um, like the question in my mind around how many use cases there are like that where there's obvious convergence, I'm not entirely sure. The second way it's happening is because so much of uh, the how well AI develops is so reliant on the amount of data that the AI is 
is trained upon, like this is the basis of machine learning. You throw vast quantities of data at at these algorithms and you don't necessarily even understand how the algorithm is working. It's kind of like the human brain and the way the brain learns. It's almost like a black box. And again, uh, the whether the data is coming from a consumer or an enterprise instance it does probably matter in certain specific cases, but just in general, this notion of having lots of data to train the algorithm is so critical. I would say those two factors are resulting in there being more convergence than there otherwise would have been. Well, let's let's keep in mind that second one because I think we're definitely going to return return to it later mm. on. But I think the first one, I think the this kind of gets into the value of the potential value of Uber in general mm. is the idea that it could be an infrastructure provider. Right. And when it comes to infrastructure, like it's just, yeah, it's it just, it's all about scale more, more than anything. And that gets, you know, it is a, a very rough segue. It's I'm going to attempt to pull off uh, to get back, get back to these sort of, these sort of cloud providers. And you have, so what, what Amazon did, so going back to 2006, that was a very long roundabout way to talk about the fact that uh, Google's enterprise efforts started in 2006, just like Amazon's did. Amazon's enterprise efforts took on a completely, were a very different approach, to say the least. And what they did is that year they started selling basically storage online. And then I think in 2007, they started selling compute online. And what they were doing was basically going in the exact opposite direction. They weren't building up a big service like email or document editing or whatever and kind of presenting it as fate accompli to to the end user, whether that end user be a consumer or whether it be a business. Rather, they were taking all the things that went into building in that or building anything and chop breaking it down into its component pieces. Mm-hmm. And and then selling those pieces, you know, on an as as need basis and really engaging in a sort of arbitrage where they're doing significant upfront investment to build out these resources and then selling them uh, as on an as need basis. And yes, you can get future, you know, long-term contracts, et cetera. But the idea is still sort of like, like a landlord almost, right? Where you buy a property and then you rent it out and the rent you're gaining even though they're shorter term leases, you know you you make more money in the long run. It's, it's it's the same sort of concept when it comes to the approach Amazon took. And they have one big advantage, which we have touched on a number of times, and just it still blows my mind how clever this is. They know they have an anchor tenant because they serve as the anchor tenant. They will develop these services at arm's length and sell it into the rest of Amazon. Figure out. Uh, and, and not give preferential treatment. They will treat it as if it's an outside entity. So then they can just flick a switch and make it available to the world. Right. I've made this point before, both on Shatekri and in the podcast, but some people actually it bounced it back on me again this week. So I, I just want to be super duper clear. Like there's this myth that Amazon was like selling like excess capacity for Amazon.com. And that's how AWS came about, which is which is stupid. I mean, if you think about it for two seconds, like, like so the myth is, oh, they, they have to build so much capacity for Christmas that the rest of the year it's all sitting empty. So what do they do? Turn off AWS during Christmas? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, no, that's obviously not where AWS came about. It's a convenient myth. It's like, it's like Amazon saying that they're buying these airplanes for Christmas, right? No, they're not buying airplanes for Christmas. They're buying airplanes to use throughout the year and they'll let FedEx take care and UPS take care of Christmas, right? Which is a terrible business to be in, you know, handling nothing but peak demand. Anyhow, uh, that aside... 
before you go on, no, no, no. And I think I didn't entirely internalize it until I came across that article that you are linked to in your your update this week or in your article this week, rather, uh, written by the Google engineer talking about the difference between a uh, product mentality and a platform mentality. So Google obviously has the product mentality and Amazon has the platform mentality. We should include it in the show notes. If you haven't gone and read it yet, you really should. It's long, but it is totally worth it. Yeah, and, and this was this was a big thing that I, I that that article is definitely inspiration, but also I had it built on further, not just for this, but the Amazon tax article. The Amazon tax, the idea was to really go back to, and, and again, this, this is why I, I always like to go back to the founding of companies and try to get into their culture and what made them successful at the beginning because it gives, I think, so many insights in the way they think about problems today. And this is th- this Google versus Amazon thing is, is a classic example. So in, in Amazon, for example, and I, I think we, we did talk about this on a podcast before. We might be repeating ourselves, but it's good stuff, so we're going <laughs> to so repeat ourselves. Bear with us. But this idea, well, like, for, for example, Amazon's very famous where in meetings, you uh, you have to prepare this Word document, right? Mm. No, no PowerPoint. Why? Mm. Because one of Bezos' edicts is that the details live between the bullet points, right? And and when you actually have to write it out, you have to actually think through all the parts between the bullet points, and you can't just kind of hand wave it and kind of, oh, yeah, we're going to do these three things. No, you have to actually figure it out. And this this deeper idea that you know meetings are a, meetings are a sign of failure <laughs> in that – that meant that if you why do you have meetings? You have meetings to kind of figure out how two teams can work together and and solve a problem, right? That means though that the the various teams didn't have didn't clearly expose their capabilities and what they can do, and 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 they're they're off, you know, and so there wasn't sort of a standard interface, which meant you needed a meeting to kind of smooth it out and smooth it over. And this has been, you know, we. One of the things that makes Amazon so powerful is the fact that it really is a bunch of individual businesses. There's a bunch of startups inside Amazon, basically. There's some cash cows that throw off cash and fund, and fund all the other ones. But they, it's not just that they're independent from a you know, build a new business perspective. They're truly independent, right? They're, they're not really dealing with each other by design. Now, the downside of this is you know, at Apple, I remember when I was there, I saw this this training manual or whatever that was like, we love meetings, was literally the first line in it. And I'm like, what? But there, the reason why they love meetings is because that's where you that's where you develop the integration. That's where you get stuff to work together. That's where you smooth over the rough edges so you do, you present a delightful experience for the user. And there's there is this sort of fundamental trade-off, right? If you're building a product and that product isn't just a physical product like an iPhone it can be a, a a virtual product like a search box or Gmail right that those are that's just as much a product as an iPhone and and in that respect these two companies are more uh, i think a lot more similar than people appreciate the way you deliver that seamless experience that delightful experience is by abstracting away all of the sort of interface and all this the rough edges right and you, so you you build a very integrated product and we, we apple's obviously integrated very famously but google's very integrated too all the stuff that goes into building search all the stuff that goes into building gmail all the stuff that goes into building all the the services that they have entails like Google's integrated from the hardware stack all the way on up, right? And and they're 
figuring and their goal, their priority is delivering that superior user experience, which means that part has to be perfectly smooth and sanded off. But by necessity, that means the rough edges have to be underneath the surface and kind of, you know, worked through, if that makes sense. I was just going to say, it's when you start digging at these companies like this and understanding and, and something that seems so simple as whether a meeting is considered a good thing or a bad thing and how that speaks to the integration or modularity between, uh, within an organization. And then you hear folks saying, oh, Apple should just do this or Amazon should just do this. And it's, it's with that understanding that you you begin to have an informed opinion about whether those suggestions actually make sense. And sometimes they absolutely do. And other times they absolutely don't. It's, it, but, but having opinions about, oh, just go into this market. Oh, just do this. Without that deep understanding of the capabilities and the culture and the way the organization is structured is such a foolish thing to do. Right. Well, in companies fall prey to this themselves. I think one of the most famous examples is is the Amazon phone, right? Yes. I mean, they they were it is a company that's fundamentally unsuited to delivering a a consumer delighting product, right? Because they're internally they are they are the and remember, in general, you succeed by going to the extremes, mm, right? Mm. We talk about this with Apple all the time, right? Be careful what you wish for and you want Apple to be good at services because the mindset that goes into delivering a physical product – again, we're, 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 we're talking about a few different axes here, so mm. I want to be very precise. So we, Google and Apple are like on the product side. They're both product companies. Where they differ is one is a services product and one is a physical product sort of company, right? And those are very different. A physical product, you're building towards an endpoint. Whereas a services product, you're building something that that iterates. And so that requires very different mindsets and approach. And we've discussed that. And I wrote you know, Apple's organizational crossroads talking about how app, that's a fundamental challenge for Apple in services. But again, it's something you want to tread, you want to be very careful at getting mad at Apple about because their weakness in services is is the exact same thing as their strength in those physical sort of products. Okay, so so leaving that axes aside, if we take this other axis of pro of product versus platform, which is the axis I would use, I should have mm. I probably should have made a drawing for this to, to 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 make it clearer. But if you take this sort of product versus platform, where a product you are finishing the you are finishing something, you're finishing it such that people will use it with with very light modifications right you can change the skin on your gmail right you can put a case on your iphone like they, they, but they are what they are right that's amazon's the exact opposite and in this they're they're really the the true sort of successor to microsoft the microsoft of the 80s and 80s and 90s where amazon is presenting you with building blocks and what you can do, and they're fully sanded off, and they, they totally stand alone. And how to interface them is super obvious. There's a big, there's you know tons of API calls. It's there's tons of documentation, and you can go in and you can take those pieces and you can build what you want, and you can build a product with those pieces, right? So Netflix can go in and it can take all those pieces and put together and layer on their own stuff, and then build on top their finished user experience where all those pieces are abstracted away underneath the service where customers never see them. All customers see is the end product, right? They see the standard off the part. But Netflix is not a platform. Netflix is a product, right? And this is the this is how products and platforms interact. Products live on top of platforms. And the 
and and what makes Amazon so so great at this, frankly, and there's tons of problems with AWS and tons of problems with Amazon, and, and lots of them are well documented. But what what they're and this is this is what that rant really gets at. What's so great about that rant, this this Steve Egger rant, is he starts out like just dissing Amazon, right? Oh, all these things you heard are true. They're terrible, terrible. Google is so much better. He's like, but there's one big thing they get right, and this is this is the big thing they get right is. From the team level on up, every single aspect of Amazon is about the building block mentality. They make building blocks. And you can use those building blocks to build anything you want, and then Amazon will take a tax off the top, right? That, 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 that's the, tax, that's the tax, tax analogy. That could be shipping. That could be delivery. That could be computing. And critically, and this is why the culture part is so important. This is the point you were making earlier. Critically, th- by doing that internally, by making Amazon.com completely separate from AWS, they, dev- they get kind of the best of both worlds. They get the rapid iteration and feedback that comes from doing your own product. But the, unlike, say, Google, for example, like Google builds these massive services, and they have their own sort of platform underneath it. It's called the Borg, um, and, along with a whole bunch of other stuff. But that kind of manages compute resources across their massive fleet of data centers. But well, what do you do if you're building Gmail and something's not quite working. You go have a meeting with the people who are building the resources, and then you build kind of like a shortcut or a shim or something that get that you just get it to work, right? Because what's the goal? You don't want the user to see the problems, right? And so, but the problem is when you build those shims or you build those shortcuts or you build a special capability just for Gmail or a special capability just for Google Photos or special capability for Chrome or whatever it might be, that's a special capability that you can't really expose you you can't expose that you like special capabilities are code for security holes basically right like and whereas amazon by because it's so embedded in the culture to have that sort of black box mentality where you have all these building blocks and they're all independent and there's a standard way to interface with them not only does that 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 makes it a very natural step to sell internally and then to sell externally and they're using the same stuff it, when you go to Amazon and go, AWS to build your product you are using the exact same resources with the exact same API calls with the exact same security that amazon.com is so i i think the uh, i love the 2 by 2 i think there's one really uh, important distinction, though, which is rather than call it product versus services, let's uh, let's say hardware versus services. The hardware ships, but the service is constantly uh, evolving, and that's a very different mentality. On the product versus platform, I think the way to, that that I think about it is where a majority of the value comes from. With with a product focused company, you as a user get a majority of the the value from the company shipping the the product. But on a platform as a user, the majority of the value often comes from people who are working on top of the platform. And that's the difference between Google, which will ship you, uh, or an Apple, which will ship you the specific products and you love the products versus Amazon, which tends to be in the background providing AWS for, for, for companies like Netflix to enable to serve you awesome things, right? Well, just just to jump in on that, there, um, the 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 inspiration for the uh, the tax idea was was actually from uh, Chamath Palapatia, who who talked about Amazon being AWS being a tax on on computer companies everywhere, basically. And mm. my contribution was to extend that. That's actually it, that's actually 
not just AWS, it's also Amazon.com, which is switching to the merchant model. It's going to be logistics, and it's integral to sort of the company's internal structure. Just, mm. I mean, I, I will give full credit to my inspiration, but that, that, that was kind of how that played out. But there's, there's this other great quote. So uh, Shamath was in charge of the Facebook platform. And I, mm. I, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. And and the reason and, and I think and the reason he, he talked about it is he was talking to Bill Gates. They had just raised money from Bill Gates at Facebook, and uh, he, and he's going there and he's talking to Facebook and he's bragging about the Facebook platform, blah blah blah. And I'm going to quote this is I'll put this this it's an interview transcript. I'll put it in, in the links. Gates said something along the lines of "That's a crock of shit. This isn't a platform." A platform is when the economic value of everybody that uses it exceeds the value of the company that creates it. Then it's a platform. And that is such a powerful way to think about mm. this. I mean, this is this was Microsoft. Like Microsoft used to brag in their in their ten in their 10K every year that Windows, we captured 27% of the value of the of the Windows ecosystem. And and their goal was to keep that low. Right, because they they valued the apps that were built on top of Windows. They valued the value added resellers that were patching mm. Windows, the OEMs who were selling computers. Their mindset was that of a platform company where they are providing they're providing an essential building block that everyone has to get, which is how they basically tax the ecosystem. But that ecosystem, they their tax will be greater. It's like it's like a, we're getting into politics. It's like a political argument, right? The idea that oh, we will you, if the economy grows, you will get more taxes, even if taxes are low, because there's going to be more things to tax, right? And is an I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that 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 there's an ongoing debate about that, right? But the idea is certainly sound. If the economy is larger, by definition, the government's going to collect more tax without raising rates, just because there's more stuff to tax. It's the same thing with a platform provider. And when you think about a platform in that regard, that it's about who gets the most money, is it the one providing the platform or is it everyone else? It becomes very clear why I've said it again and again, Microsoft is a platform company, Amazon's a platform company, and the other ones aren't. Like a- Apple's not a platform company. Google's not a platform company. Facebook is not a platform company. They are keeping the vast majority of the profits for themselves. Now, Apple's kind of backing into being a platform company just by virtue of the App Store and how huge mm-hmm. it is. But even then, the App Store, which is a, a huge, you know, tens of billions of dollars or $13 billion or something like that, pales in comparison to what Apple is making, right? Yeah. And, and, this, and this is why Apple does a – you can question the causality, but why Apple does a bad job administering the platform generally, as we, we've complained several times. Because that that's not their mindset. That's not their priority. That's not how they make money. And – and when you think about it in that direction, it really becomes clear when the that these are different business models, they're different mindsets, and it follows. This is a theme of like this is strategy in a nutshell. Different business models drive different approaches, drive different successes in different markets. What was interesting was um, you also described how Google's approach to. Uh, uh, product versus platform was that you said you, you used the exact words and uh, uh, it's a black box. And what's really interesting is that the way this market is evolving right now is that there's an instance where a black box where the user doesn't see what's actually going on inside that there's a standing question as to whether that might actually 
become the most important part of this whole ecosystem, which is machine learning in terms of these services that are being provided to businesses. Right. I mean, excellent black box thread segue. Double, double, yeah. double. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Thank you. <laughs> right. So, so Google, Google in the last year has, has really recommitted to the cloud. And there's a few, it's really interesting to think about this in a few different dimensions. One is, you know, there is a, Google's growth is like there's a question how long it can go on given their given their current model. Uh, mobile doesn't monetize as well as as desktop by a long shot. Mm-hmm. We don't have the exact numbers, but what we, what we can tease out, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. They have juiced their numbers by basically making it when you search now on Google, the entire screen is ads. Uh, <laughs> and and but but the point is compared to 2006 where there was just limitless potential for for Google's model. And well, not just that, but Google and Facebook at this point had basically saturated the direct marketing, you know, sort of marketplace. Mm. Like there, it's not just that Google's running out of a mobile versus a mobile versus desktop thing. It's that how much money is there in the world to actually go to these markets right. that they haven't gobbled up between the two of them. So the there's a motivation that wasn't there 10 years ago to figure this out. And you can see, and they've taken some very serious steps. They've really rebuilt their offering. They had like uh, to have much more Amazon, like very clear purchases of infrastructure. They had a platform offering app engine, but now they have much more clear infrastructure offerings. You can buy the processing, you can buy the compute, you can buy, uh, I just used the same word twice. You can buy the storage, you buy, et cetera. And then they they hired uh, Diane Green, the former the, the founder of VMware. She's on the board. She's setting up this entire new division. They've hired they've uh, from in, both Google internally, but also from outside folks like Sam Schlachy, like who, uh, who started Google Docs. They're bringing in like this all star team. They're reorganizing their sales team, which they just did, which just came mm. out this week. Like they are making a very serious effort in into this space and and i and i think they have a reason to i think that's important it's yes so the the and there's obviously and everyone's like oh google has so much infrastructure and it's true they do they like google has the most infrastructure of anyone more than amazon more like because they built it for themselves and they have some really kind of interesting advantages like for example google has uh as of three years ago they had over a hundred thousand miles worth of their own private fiber network. It's probably way more than that now. They've weighed several Trans-Pacific cables, for example, since then. So by definition, it's more. I would guess it's probably close to 200,000. I couldn't find a, a more recent number. It, but part of the reason they have that is because in the 2000s, they were they bought up all that dark fiber from the dot-com bubble where everyone mm. was laying fiber like crazy and then no one actually used it. So they bought a bunch of that up. They've been laying cables and that's all fully depreciated, right? So they have this crazy fast like connection between data centers. So if you're a worldwide provider, right? And you 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 want to reach everyone. Google has a, a built-in sort of advantage over everyone. AWS has more regions. Like if you want to have a data center close to you, but as far as like you know inner inner age, inner data center communication, Google has a big advantage, and it's fully depreciated. So they, they don't have to actually charge you for that. They've already paid for it. You know, for, for basically. So they, and they have and they have all the data center. They have all their own custom hardware. They've been built. They were the first to build custom hardware. They have their custom. All everything's custom that they do. It's all fully built to get massive efficiency from these data centers, and that's and so everyone's like, oh, that's a huge advantage. It is, it is. But again, it's not just about 
it's not just about taking what you do on one side of the business and using it on the other because the way Google uses mm. that, the way they do it is in service of product. And this is the big hangup. It's that all the stuff that they, all the work they do is not set up for people on the outside to access. So, so by virtue of this, that's why Google had to go out and hire and get Diane Green. They had to set up basically a completely new organization outside of the main organization. It's in Google. It's you know, it's not an alphabet, but it's it's in Google. But it's a separate. It's very much a separate org, and there and. They're building, and they had to build their own technology. So they they open source something called called uh, I actually have no idea how to pronounce this. Like Kubernetes, uh, I, I should have looked this up before this podcast. It's basically an open source version of Borg, uh, the the sort of internal system they have to manage containers, which is basically uh, a if you run like Gmail, you just get a you you, you get containers which are self contained processing and memory and all that sort of stuff, and you can scale kind of infinitely. It's kind of like virtualization, but almost like a level above. Because you don't need to provision an operating system, like it just—it's like it's—it's it, it's a self-contained sort of thing, and they're—and so they're—they're they're building this on the open market, but they're having to take a very different approach than Amazon. For all like that rant by by Steve Vega, that's still mm. true. Google's still a product company, which means they, when they're building out this, they need to take a a new organization sort of approach. This is what it, it brings into stark relief how impressive Amazon's. Um, discipline is to this approach because if you think about building out a product or service with interfaces such that it's modular it's always going to be way harder and if you're and if every time you do this you're creating modularity around the service there's there's this overhead that's required both in terms of what you build and how you build it it just makes life more difficult in the short run but in the long run if particularly if you decide you want to flick the switch and make that open to the world, that discipline can pay extraordinary dividends. And the easy short run option, and I'm not saying this in a way to be critical of Google because it's not in their culture, is just like, oh gosh, we need we need services like what Borg provides. Let's just let's just build them and then get everything up in service of our product. But then they realize five, 10 years later, oh, actually, this is something that's really important that and really valuable that we could expose to the rest of the world. Going back at that point and trying to add modularity over the top of these things that have been built as integrated and have been deployed and everyone inside the organization relies upon is so difficult to do. And it's it's like this perfect example like this perfect contrast of the two different approaches and the value of taking one and how that how that discipline pays dividends in the long run of what Amazon does. See, I, I'm going to disagree with you. And the reason I'm going to disagree with you is because Google did the exact right thing for the business Google was building. So I, I wouldn't criticize them in the slightest. It's not, it's not a cultural thing. It's that Google was building a consumer product. And if you're building a consumer product, you should build, you should take a product mindset, which is that the end result is seamless and all the engineering and all the, all the modularity is invisible to the user. And so you're building an integrated sort of product. And like for and so I wouldn't want Google to do it differently because I want Google's products to be great. It's the exact same thing as Apple. I don't want Apple to change their hardware finished product sort of approach where they try to deliver the most perfect thing they can at a specific date because I think they make pretty freaking awesome phones. 
So uh, why would I want them to change? And oh, so I, what's so what's my no? I, I'm 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 taking an extreme position against you just for 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 effect. But what's hmm. my recommendation for Apple in building services? To do it as a separate organization, exactly because it takes a very different approach and mindset to build iterative services, even if they're a product, even if they're experienced as a product, just the, what goes into building iterative services is different than what goes into building a hardware product, right? And so actually, I think Google's doing the exact right thing here. They, they, they have their main organization that delivers integrated consumer products. They're services products, not hardware products, but it's the same, same idea. To succeed in this space, to succeed in Enterprise computing requires delivering, being modular, delivering building blocks. And it's the exact appropriate approach to make that a, a, a separate organization within Google because you're you, either one, you're going to do it badly because everything you do drives in the opposite direction, or two, you're going to screw up your, your product by introducing modularity into what should be an integrated sort of product. Yes. I, I, um, Maybe I didn't say it. I I thought I said I didn't want to be. I didn't want to criticize Google for it, but ra- rather yeah, it was I, just I, I, was, a, I was I was I was I was using you, your response you, for effect. Yeah, yeah, you, you sure <laughs> did. I got I got I got turned into a straw man and then riddled with arrows. Then, <laughs> thanks, James. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, but but so do I, Ben. <laughs> So, but but I but so yeah, I think they're I think they're taking I think they're taking the right approach and. So that's just the the organizational approach. What what is really interesting, and now we're getting into the sort of the, the details of what they're doing by pushing this sort of container thing. And Kubernetes is not the only option. There's also Docker Swarm, and I've written about Docker in the past. I'll put a link in the show notes. In in that article, I explain much more deeply what containers are and why they're important. Mm. But what's really important about this idea is they it, they abstract away the the server that they run on. So. Uh, Kubernetes, you, you can get this container technology and you can run the same application on AWS. You can run it on, which supports, you know, Kubernetes runs on AWS. You can run it on Azure. You can run it on, on Google's cloud. You can run it on your, on your own PC. It, it's, it's fully portable. And the analogy I drew was to like the browser, right? What was, what broke Windows control? And because what happens is Windows, mm. Windows was started out by being a platform, having building blocks, right? But the problem is once you start using those building blocks, this is, this is what's so brilliant about this, is how lock-in works on open platforms. Because remember, a product is all fully integrated and all tied together, right? You don't really pull it apart. Just like, you know, in my attack on your straw man, you don't want to, you don't want to pull Google apart. What makes Google work, right? Mm. So what gives like Microsoft lock-in is they provided all these building blocks and then you build on top of it, but you're building a product on top of it. And a product is integrated and tied together and is user-facing. And you don't want to pull that apart to, oh, I want to go from, you know, I want to now go on OS2 or I want to go on Solaris or whatever it might be, right? No, you, you were on Windows and everyone ended up on Windows. That's the same thing AWS is trying to pull off. You build on AWS and then you build a product on top of that. And AWS gives you more and more services and more and more of those services are kind of custom AWS. Oh, you do the embrace, extend, extinguish, right? That's mm. AWS's Docker strategy or AWS's container strategy. They have the AWS container service, which just just so happens to be deeply tied into their EC2 compute instances and their storage. Like what if you use AWS's Docker or, or container approach, you're actually locking yourself in. And the whole idea of containers is to not get locked in, right? It's 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 basically 
the Microsoft strategy all over again. And what Google's trying to do is build this thing that sits on top of that and is fully portable, just like the browser and web pages were mm. fully portable. They ran on any platform, and they they didn't undo Windows lock-in. They made it so that it didn't matter anymore. The uh, the the analogy of um the analogy of how the platforms evolved like the PC and Windows to the browser and web the the analogy is so interesting doing the same thing around these infrastructure services and making the case that uh that uh, AI and machine learning is going to be the equivalent of uh the web on top of desktop well, and well, it's going to be really quite- in- well, it's not quite. It's not quite the equivalent of of the web because the web there was two parts. So Google didn't win mm-hmm. because there was the web. Mm-hmm. Google won because the browser, or right. sorry, Google Search was the best possible tool to navigate the web. Yes, and so there was there was a two step process. The web being a thing was a mm-hmm. necessary precondition to Google becoming a dominant company. Right, and so the analogy here is that if Google and this is with the brilliance of open sourcing, you know, Kubernetes. Like the idea of like Borg was considered a huge advantage for Google internally. And it was one of the things they never talked about. Like you didn't even no one even knew it existed except for kind of secrets from former Google employees. It was this thing that you sort of heard about this incredible technology Google had for managing resources internally, right? It was a total secret. Why did Google take one of their biggest advantages, one of their biggest what they considered a huge strategic advantage? Why did they take it and open source it? Because yeah, uh, that you're you're modularizing you're modularizing something. Well, uh, everybody then operates on top of that. No, that's exactly right. They're they're putting something on top of of something, just like the browser was on top. And remember, the browser didn't guarantee Google's success. It was a necessary precondition. And I think the the reason they would open source this is because the impact of of this technology broadly, this sort of container approach is to create the conditions where everyone is once again competing on an equal playing field. You're not locked into AWS. You're not locked into Azure. You're not locked into Google. You're not locked into your own data center because you're sitting on a layer of abstraction that lets you operate wherever you want. And it kind of reopens the choice, right? Whereas everyone at like people were already defaulting to AWS. But if there's a reason where you can more easily change your mind, more easily choose, it, it kind of restarts the competition, if that makes sense. It's a very, very smart play. And when you it's when you have something that is um that is considered such a big advantage to take that and use it as a mechanism to level the playing field, uh, it's not always a natural thing for an organization to be willing to do. Totally. And, and this is the key thing, though. And you made this point, a point you made, I think, on, on several podcasts is, you know, Google succeeds on in, in openness, right? Yes, yes, always. They grew up on the web and they learned the lesson because the web was open, they learned the lesson culturally that the best technology always wins. And in an open environment, that's absolutely true. They could create a crawler that would go out and look at all the web pages out there and provide the best search engine. And on the basis of being the best search engine, they would win. But increasingly, it's the case with a lot of these services that the web is starting to close off. Like think about all the vast volume of data that rests inside of Facebook, for example, and 
Google has no way of getting access to that. So one of the smartest things they can do is to create conditions where openness prevails because in a open and quote unquote fair fight, uh, it's very hard to come up against Google's technical prowess. Right, exactly. And so I, th- th- this is where, again, I'm not saying it's going to succeed, but I think this is, this, is why, this is why I titled the article how they are challenging. They are trying to, with their Kubernetes approach, with the open source approach, make the cloud computing you know, competition into an open competition as opposed to a, a, a closed one. Because in the open competition, and this is the point you've been driving at you know, pretty consistently, if something like machine learning, if something like you know, artificial intelligence broadly, you know, sort of broadly defined, starts to really matter, starts to be a reason to choose one cloud provider over the other, well, that doesn't do you much good if you're locked in AWS. You're just going to use AWS's offering. But if it's trivial to change, or if you start from day one building with a technology like this container technology where you can switch easily, then suddenly Google's sort of back to where they're most comfortable. They're they're they will sell themselves not based on being, you know, a modular building block provider, but they'll sell themselves based on being the best technology company and the best product company. Because to your point, machine learning is a bit of a product you're selling a product in many respects. It's kind of dawned on me as we're talking here that it's interesting, like it's typical for a company to think that this is our advantage, this is our edge, this is the thing that we're always best at. What's really encouraging is that they're also recognizing the conditions under which they are most likely to succeed and investing and um, and putting out into the world something that's super valuable that they could hold close to their chest, but they're letting it out there in order to create the conditions for which they will succeed. And it's it sounds obvious when we talk about it like this, but again, being the person that suggests it in a meeting that we should give away, not that they're giving away, but like we should open up the crown jewels is not something that's easy to do. And the fact that they've not only suggested it, they're embracing it, and this is what they're going for, uh, from a strategic perspective, speaks volumes. It really does because, and it gets to one of a, a certainly a core tenet of strategy that your it's it's easier to change your strategy than your culture, right? Like you you are who you are, and so instead of trying to change their very nature uh, and compete on Amazon's terms, they're trying to like change the rules of the game to change the the playing field such that their natural sort of capabilities and their natural approach will come to the bear. I mean, they are, for all as great as that rant was, that Steve Yeager rant, they're not following his advice, right? They are not, they are building, they are not running Google itself on the technology they're selling. And and you, there's problems with that. Like there's big benefits that come from dog fooding in the example that mm. we talked about with, with, with Amazon, but that's not in Google to do. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, 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 it's like a, a, a deeper step of strategy to not just realize like that, that rant was great in it diagnosed the problem, but the solution that Google ought to change its very nature as a company was wrong. And it was wrong in a, in a, on the surface, it's clearly right sort of way, but it was wrong in a, in an inability in in undervaluing the importance of culture and the way a company naturally works and its natural rhythms and google 
is answering the, the challenge in that rant. They, they are taking an approach, but they're doing it in a different way than I think the author sort of expected them to do. And again, it's not necessarily going to work, but I think it has a much greater chance of working than trying to just fundamentally change the nature of Google itself. The, the rant, the, it's interesting in that uh, oftentimes people's backgrounds um, and their training uh, forges their thinking and that the way that that, um, that that long article was written speaks very much to an engineer's mindset uh, and it, it discounts, it's, it's a very technical approach and it's, it's uh, a very technical approach to diagnosing and then making a recommendation on how to fix it and it, by its very nature, and I would say this with the greatest of love, I have many engineering friends um, it, 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 it discounts the difficulty of changing people. And what's so impressive about, um, about what Google's management is doing is that they've recognized that that's the case. And rather than trying to change the people, rather than just go for the very technical route, they've gone to like, okay, recognition that this is these are the conditions under wh which we work best and we're going to invest our time and resources in trying to change the conditions rather than change the company exactly exactly now the, 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 now the, the sort of flying the ointment is you know <laughs> i'm not sure it's going to work you know mm. the, the you can change like and this would be a problem like if apple did like a separate sort of as an analogy if apple did a, a separate services organization as i've advocated would you ever really be able to root out that sort core sort of apple like the final product has to be perfect you know <laughs> sort of mindset it's hard right because cultures are powerful and it's fair to question will google ever really be able to root out the we're going to deliver the ideal solution and then you're going to come and use it because it's so awesome, right? And by, actually, by all accounts, you talk to engineers, Google Cloud Platform is already much more elegant, much more approachable, much more easy to use than, than Amazon is. Amazon has like this mismatch of features. There's different interfaces all over the place. Some of it feels half-baked. But why? Because Amazon is like, like the best sort of enterprise company, it's responding to the market, right? It sees there's there's a hole here. People want the service. Boom, they spin it up. They build it out. And they yeah, they try to smooth over the edges in the long run. But it's it's a very different sort of mindset. And you see this approach with like an IBM. Like IBM's cloud approach is, you know, it's all under the umbrella term Watson. Some of it's machine learning based. Some of it is just their old sort of analytics suite. But it's all called it's, it's all called AI now. But they're they're delivering solutions. They have a healthcare solution. They have an education solution. Microsoft, this you know the same sort of thing. Microsoft has more of a Microsoft's technology is actually pretty good in this space. They've also because they, they've been spending so much time on it, much like Google has. But they partner with partners to deliver s solutions as well. And you know. Google's not just, they've done the job of kind of divorcing it from the Google internal product approach. And they've used their technology to kind of create the conditions where they can potentially compete with machine learning. And they created this group, this machine learning group, whose job is, I mean, their, their current machine learning APIs are like vision and speech. All that stuff is is comes from the consumer side, right? They're already doing image recognition on the consumer side. They're, they're doing it in search. They're doing text recognition. They're doing speech, all those sorts of things. But they have to actually build stuff that enterprises use that maybe consumers don't. And do they have it in them to not just build the, them as a as a building block, but also to really go out and understand consumer needs, to actually understand what will sell, right? Because it, technology particularly in enterprise, only takes you so far. People want 
something to be done. They want a solution, right? They, they don't necessarily want to... Tech companies want to build themselves. Netflix wants to build themselves, right? Selling to Netflix, though, is very different than selling to like Johnson & Johnson, who just wants something to work. The, um, your description of the contrast between Google's services that have this very integrated and polished feel versus Amazon's, which are much more of a hodgepodge where they've just followed where the market wants. It reminds me precisely of that analogy we used earlier, which was the Microsoft versus Apple approach to um, if you if you think about uh, PCs, whereas one was very much a, a platform, the other was a product. And you said like the standing question, is it going to work? Like what, what Google's doing? Uh, just like if Apple were to build a services uh, team and make it separate, the culture would still potentially carry over. No, it absolutely doesn't guarantee it's going to work but it is a it's necessary but not sufficient it is a necessary precondition for them to have a shot at it working and that's what i think is impressive about this i mean if you think back to where we started like these virtuous cycles happen and it's once they start in an industry it's so hard to arrest them and to google's credit they have created through uh, a, a lot of a lot of hard work and uh, well-made challenging decisions, uh, they've created themselves a potential opening to get back in the game. And that's typically very hard to do. Right, right. And we, we've, we've, I mean, we, we've touched on it intermittently throughout. But I mean, th- by all accounts, they have the best machine learning by like a significant amount. Like it, it's, it just really is far ahead of everybody else. And to the degree they can apply that to enterprise where it's something that is meaningful and useful. And again, you know, and they have all, they have all this data on the consumer side that, that they can train on, they can learn. You know, how much can they port that from the consumer side and all the advantages they have there to enterprise products is an open question, but you can certainly envision a scenario where, I mean, because like a lot of, you're you're building heuristics in some respects, right? And maybe Google's, and like, and you get data from the enterprise, but that you have to keep that in by itself, right? You can't be mixing people's data. Like they're not going to pay you to mix their data together. Whereas on the consumer side, you can mix and mingle everyone's data because for other privacy discussions we could talk about, right? Yes. And so the question is like, you can envision where Google can basically train its algorithms on consumer data. And then when it delivers them to enterprises, it's way down the sort of training funnel, right? It's already pretty good at figuring stuff out. And then on the limited data set the, the, the enterprise consumer has, it can get better. Whereas Amazon, for example, yes, they, they're doing stuff at Amazon.com, but but you know, you're starting with a smaller set of data if you're only using one customer. Again, I'm not I don't know. Like we're getting into territories. Yeah, I'm not a machine learning expert by any means, but you can certainly envision a scenario where Google's advantage on the consumer side, both from their technology to date, but also their data advantages, the point you've made a few times, gives them a sustainable sort of advantage in an enterprise offering. Again, can they productize it? Can they deliver stuff people want? Can they sell it? Very much open questions, but there's at least a route to success here that I think was not necessarily there a few years ago. And that in itself is pretty impressive. It is. It is. like, And, you know, this is a... Uh, I think Sundar Pichai, I mean, there's it, it, been, been a series of moves I feel like Google has done recently that we're, the jury is still open whether they're going to play out. But I think a very clear recognition of of Google's challenges, right? Whether it be the the 
access to customers on the consumer side or whether it be, well, frankly, access to customers on the enterprise side. Mm. And it's, it, it, I think it's impressive. Again, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work, but you, you can't do anything unless you first acknowledge the reality of where you are and chart a path to, act, to get to a better place. And, and even acknowledging it sometimes is really challenging for these organizations. It's to admit that things aren't going perfectly well. But yeah. Especially credit, for Google, right? Because I mean, yeah. people still throw it back at me. I wrote peak Google and that, oh, their, their revenues are still going, you know, are still increasing. They've increased ever since then. Yes. I, I, and I, you know, I caveated in there like I would, I expected that to happen. But the, the fundamental challenge that I identified back then still remains. Like, where do they go next? There is a cap to where they are at now. And and it's it's really hard to make those changes when things are still going well every quarter on those investment calls, right? You can tell them everything's great. To identify changes that need to be made and approaches that need to be taken when the numbers still look great is really hard to do. And 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 I am impressed that they that they seem to have done that. Yeah, I I mean the trap with just focusing on those revenue numbers is it's it's a bit like driving uh, driving a car using the rear vision mirror that that reflects all the hard work that you have done. That being said, it doesn't mean that that's a trap that people don't fall into. And you're exactly right that that they're willing to make these kinds of big bold bets despite the fact things are looking good is mightily impressive. No, for sure. And and this is such a big market, the enterprise for the, all the things we we said at the beginning, like. All these companies are going to find success. I think you know Microsoft, IBM, you know AWS, Google. I think I still I still favor AWS just because at the end of the day, like you're selling enterprise software and and a platform product, and they are a platform company with an enterprise I think mindset in their approach, and that drives I think product people up the wall and engineers up the wall where not everything's necessarily as easy to use as it ought to be or as consistent and elegant mm. but at the but <laughs> you're selling a big ticket item to the top of these companies like for better or worse that's the way enterprise software has always has always worked yeah it's going to be interesting to see it play out it will. Um, anyhow, I, I, I'm not sure if we went long enough. We had some connection problems and some washing machine problems. <laughs> Sorry if you overheard that in the background. I had to duck out and turn it off. But uh, I hate those washing machine problems. I know. I know. Speaking of Samsung, um, so yeah, our thanks to Melchim. Is your apartment on fire, Ben? <laughs> not that I not that I know of. Uh, thanks. To, I have been very focused on this podcast, so who knows? Uh, our thanks to Melchim for sponsoring this episode of Exponent and. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. Oh, I'll talk to you later. Bye.